This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the live media and current affairs panel show for the week commencing the 24th of August. I'm Mariam Chihab and on today's show, we'll be discussing Nova FM's decision to out an Ashley Madison user live on air, cartoonist Looning declaring the Victorian government fascist in his latest work, and Al Jazeera challenging the semantics around those fleeing conflict in the Middle East. Are they migrants or refugees? Joining me in the studio is Alex Lee, politics reporter at BuzzFeed. Hi, Alex. Hello. Alex McKinnon, assistant editor at Junkie. Hi, Alex. Hello. And over the phone, we have Susie O'Brien, columnist at the Herald Sun. Hi, Susie. Hello. To have your say on the issues that we're discussing, get in touch through Twitter. Our handle is at 4th Estate AU, all letters, no numbers. Nova Breakfast host Fitzy and Whippa made international headlines last week after they revealed to a woman live on air that her husband had an Ashley Madison account. Of course, Ashley Madison is the cheating website that was hacked with the details of millions of users published online last week. Fitzy and Whippa had urged listeners to call in if they suspected their partners of cheating so they could check whether an Ashley Madison account existed. It was during their second call that they made the revelation, which left the caller, a wife and mother of two, fuming and instantly caused regret from Whippa. First of all, what did you guys think of the segments in the first place, Alex, please? Um, look, I don't often listen to Fitzy and Whipper, um, but I, it's, it's a bit of a silly concept for a segment because wasn't it all available online anyway? So I often think about these things like with like people writing into like Dolly Doctor or something, you know, it's much easier to just look it up for yourself. But, you know, those people chose to do it and um, that's okay. Um... What I think of, I think it's a bit, I mean, it's a bit gross, isn't it? But that's, you know, how, how could a radio producer turn that down? I mean, it's such great, great fodder for a, uh, a chat and everyone wants to talk about it. So I can kind of see why, why they did it. Alex McKinnon, what do you think? Uh, yeah, it is kind of gross. Um, I guess we're kind of thankful that no one died this time around. Like the last time some Australian radio shock shocks pulled something like this, uh, a woman killed herself which was really unfortunate um and i think our, our collective memory about this kind of stuff is very short because it when it becomes a big sensational thing uh it's quite easily forgotten um and the people who it actually affects are sort of left behind Susie, what did, what did you think of the segment yes I, I tend to agree with the second alex i mean uh <laughs> they said i feel like we're on jerry, jerry springer and it, it definitely had that kind of public confessional feeling to it and it was really listening to it. It was like a slow-moving train wreck. You knew something terrible was going to happen. And I think, did we not learn anything from the Royal Prank Call? I, I think whoever, whatever the producer thought of this idea should be, you know, should lose their job. I think it was absolutely disgraceful. And I think it's easy to say, oh, well, she phoned up. Clearly, that was not what she was expecting to hear because she says, are you freaking kidding me? 
um, these websites are disgraceful. So she was clearly not expecting that and it was probably a bit of a joke and I think it was disgraceful and I can't believe it went to air. Well, on that note, Susie, calls are screened before they go to a host. Should they have checked the website before going live on air or should the caller have had the option of being told before being on air? Yes, both. Yes to both, absolutely. And I agree with um, with the second Alex. I think it was just disgraceful and we are lucky that no one died and God knows what is happening in that household tonight or, you know, in the aftermath of that phone call. And I would hate to be the head of the network having to speak to that woman or her family if anything did happen. I think it was... I I just can't believe it went to air, to be honest. Uh, Alex Lee, confessional segments and pranks that have been pulled in the past have caused a lot of anger and grief for people. How well do you think FM stations are considering the caller when devising these types of segments? Well, I, they, I certainly think that they're putting a well. You'd hope that they're putting more a, a thought into it after the last uh, time it went so badly. But I don't. I don't think they are thinking of the caller. I mean, they've just. Uh, I mean, if you think of the things that like Kyle and Jackie O have done in the past, like the horrific um, thing with the uh, the fourteen year old girl and her mother, um, you know, confessing to like being raped live on air. Like it was just like. I, I have never worked in a commercial radio station, so I have no idea how they work. Um, but obviously it's for them, I, it, it can't be a priority for them because you just see the type of things that they do every day. And I think it's part of that shock value, which is what makes them so successful. Alex McKinnon, do you think uh, these stations are considering the caller when devising those segments? Um, probably most of the time, except when they don't, except when it comes, uh, like Alex number one said. Um, when it comes into conflict with uh, really generating that shock value, because that's what radio, especially talkback radio, thrives on. Um, Alan Jones and John Laws and Stan Zamanik before them uh, were, were trade. We've been trading in this stuff for decades. It's why people listen to radio like that, um, and it goes wrong every now and then, and everyone is outraged. But uh, you could quite conceivably pick up any number of other uh, controversies that never sort of blew up the way these few have. Um, and the same criteria sort of apply. People are very quick to forget this sort of stuff. But don't you think that for something like this, where you've potentially got someone discovering live on air that their husband or wife is um, cheating on them or has intentions to cheat, um, that alarm bell should be ringing in the in the heads of producers or, or indeed the, the hosts themselves? We, oh, go ahead. Would you... Would you yeah. think so? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you certainly hope so. But I mean, then again, like, who knows what what the uh, is it today FM or it was Nova? Nova, yeah. No, I mean, who knows what they think? I mean, we're all still talking about it now. I mean, maybe this is the thing that that's keeping shows like this alive, and maybe we're just adding fuel to the fire in that in that way. Yeah, but we're not talking about it in a good way. We're not talking about it saying this was great radio, this was classic radio, this is. This is exciting and interesting and fantastic and challenging. We're saying this is disgraceful. It shouldn't have happened. Well, yes, but... I'm not sure that all, any publicity is good publicity with this sort of thing. But I don't know. Um, most... Like, to use Alan Jones as an example, he trades on bad publicity, you know? When he was found to be uh, selling advertisers to his listeners in the guise of news, um, that that was disgraceful by any, by any metric you care to name. But most of his listeners... At the end of the day, they're there for a very specific purpose, and he gives it to them. Um, I, I'm, I absolutely agree that it was a, a pretty disgusting 
thing that went to air on Fitzy and Whipper. But uh, a lot of these things are disgusting, and I think our tolerance um, for this sort of thing is kind of being steadily desensitised. Mm. Mm. I'd we... agree with that. And I think, you know, you look at um, Fitzy and Whipper, I think they even knew by the end of that segment, you can see they were backtracking at a million miles an hour. They were saying, oh, I don't know if we should have done that. Look, I'm really sorry. Mm. And you could see that they were starting for the first time to have a real understanding of what they were actually doing. Mm. Well, During the, segment. The, the leakers and many commentators out there have rushed to take the moral high ground on this issue. There are, of course, many reasons why people might sign up to a discreet dating site. Among the site's 37 million members, there must be many complicated situations. Uh, we had a taste of that with a post online by a gay man in Saudi Arabia claiming he used Ashley Madison to evade the Saudi authorities, where he was risking death to connect with other gay men. That particular hasn't been that particular story hasn't been verified. Alex McKinnon, what does it say about how much thought the hackers and the media have given to spreading the leak around? Um, I think, especially in the last few years, there's a, that real sense of sort of online vigilante justice, um, where a, a small group of people will take it upon themselves to impose their own moral code on a on a very large group of people, whether those people give consent or not. Um, that's what's happened obviously, with the Ashley Madison leaks. And you can tie it back to arguments about freedom of information and, and censorship and WikiLeaks and all that kind of thing. Um, but in this case, it's, yeah, a pretty blatant example of a, a really small, probably quite ignorant group of people who, um, f- more for reasons, I think, of sensationalism and uh, to get attention more than any sort of moral code, uh, decided to do this. Um and again, the real world effects are, are what what really gets lost in this. I mean, everyone's picked up on it, whether uh, they're agreeing with it or condemning it. Everyone's talking about it. Alex Lee, have have the hackers or the media imposed their own moral code on the issue? Do you think? Yeah, definitely. I think they use I think they use it as an excuse anyway to to do something that's a bit notorious and and to get attention. Like Alex said, like um, I just think we really have to look where we're treading with this stuff because it is new that these this um huge swathes of information coming from hackers whether it's about the sony executives or you know hacking celebrities pictures like at what point do we say well uh, this is more important than someone's right to privacy like oh this person is a bad husband uh we think or so so they don't get to have privacy and we all get to talk about it and share that information uh i think i think it is a real worry because you know i think that the, the the general public, like everyone on the internet, is so curious for more information and like all that stuff. You, there is something that really pulls you to it. I remember with with the Sony executive hacks, those emails. Like I knew they were private, but some of them were so funny, and I was so glad they were out there just as a reader. Um, even though you know, it and that's just sort of overcame the right to privacy for those people. And I, I think that it is a problem. Susie, what do you think? Well, I think it just shows that people are crazy cheating online. You know, go to the pub instead. I mean, nothing is safe these days. No passwords, no information, no data, no nude photos, nothing. I mean, the whole um, nude celebrity thing, people didn't even understand, and I must admit I'm not the expert in it myself, how the iCloud even works. People don't even really have an understanding, and yet we're trusting so much of our personal information to these these, um, technological sites. And so you would hope that the moral code is invoked by the media and that at some point there has to be a public interest. 
And so as newspapers, you know, as a newspaper, we make decisions every single day about what do we publish and what do we not publish? Do we do we publish someone's name? Do we... And sometimes um, judges make that decision for us. And generally, we think that there should be a fairly broad definition of public interest. But, you know, if it was someone who was um, high profile, who had been... Um, you know, if there was some public interest in the maybe a conflict of interest in their their job, maybe a public sector job versus what they might have been doing online on Ashley Madison, then that might there may be a public interest. But for the average person, like this woman on the radio, there's really not much public interest in the media outing these people. And you bet those media organisations have got a lot of that information and a lot of media are choosing not to publish. And that's the difference between the internet and a lot of the mainstream media. Well, Alex McKinnon, there, there, there is a lot of talk about media and hackers ruining people's marriages. Haven't Ashley Madison users done that themselves in the first place? Uh, I think that's a really kind of specious argument. Um, Ashley Madison sold itself as, as a private... Um, as, a, as, as an intensely private service, it traded on its privacy and, and guaranteed its its users that um, their information would be kept safe. Um, whether or not you agree morally with what a- Ashley Madison about is kind of another debate. Um, the the idea that it's it's your fault if uh, photo, if nude photos of yourself leaked online or emails in which you said some nasty thing were published, unless there is an, a, a sort of overpowering public interest if a politician or, or something said something like that. Um, it, the reality is we live in a world where the internet is just as much a part of our daily lives as anything is. We can't uh, ignore the fact that we spend so much of our time and have so many, so many of our interactions online uh, to say, don't do any of these things online. Um, is a very it, it doesn't solve anything because people won't people will still do it people will always take nude is photos. Is there a difference and, between doing that and then trusting some of that information to a third party that you may not have that control over the privacy settings or the secure storage of that information? Well, that's what the internet is. If you uh, want complete control over a photo that you take of yourself, uh, I don't know, take a photo and put Get it a in box a brownie. Well, Sending sending things by post, theoretically, yeah. you're entrusting it to a third party. Um, realistically, there is no viable way, at least that most people are able to understand, of, of doing these sort of things without giving up a certain level of your privacy on Gmail, on Facebook, wherever. It's just one of these things we're going to have to work out as we go along. You're listening to Fourth Estate with Alex Lee from BuzzFeed, Alex McKinnon from Junkie and Susie O'Brien from The Herald Sun. Cartoonist Looning is no stranger to controversial drawings or the vaccination debate, but his latest work for The Age has really caused a stir. Looning's cartoon takes aim at the Victorian government's plan to ban unvaccinated children from attending childcare or kindergarten. It's labelled a fascist epiphany by the cartoonist, with text reading, The God of Science grants politicians the, the divine right to enforce mass medication among babies and small children. Looning has come out and explained that he was not calling the government fascist. He was calling the ban a fascist decision. He also said, quote, Why can't we name something for what it is? Fascist is just another name for totalitarian. I am a cartoonist who uses the words that are real. 
Alex Lee, how dangerous is this cartoon? Um, I think that it is... Uh, it is dangerous to express those kinds of views and I know a lot of publications would, would choose not to do that and, I, and I, I, I think that is perfectly fine. Like I think there are a few issues where for this instance like what's at risk is the health um, and you know potentially the lives of babies. So I think that's one of those things where a, a publication should be able to make the ruling that hey we're not going to give any air time or uh, print time to this argument like uh the same same way that a lot of publications will not choose not to uh show any views of people who are climate change deniers or things like that and and i i think that's fine um there is still a pocket of people even though they are in the minority that don't believe in vaccinating children and so it is dangerous i mean whether or not they they should have published it is a a different story i still think that there is uh, there, there is room in the media for for those things because mostly because those kinds of people who express uh, those views about vaccination they really feel like they're under attack and I don't know if this is really bad generalization but they you know they they might have like conspiracies that the media is like against them and they're all like in cahoots with big pharmaceuticals and and things like that on this issue and so I think having nothing in the media can be kind of just as problematic because then that kind of strengthens their resolve uh but no I I didn't agree with the sentiments of the cartoon. (laughs) Alex McKinnon what did you think is it dangerous? In a way I think it's profoundly misguided whether or not it's it's dangerous is something i'm not quite sure um i find it really strange that he's describing uh you know enforced vaccination of children if you want them to go to school as being fascist um is you know forcing people to drive on the proper side of the road is that fascist because that kind of falls into the same ballpark for me um i mean michael lunig has the right to air his views wherever he can get them published but uh, I think the age need to have a really strong look at themselves because they're clearly just doing it for the attention now. Um, they know they know what kind of attention it gets and they know what damage it can potentially do. And now they're just sort of uh, blatantly feeding the fire. Susie, what do you think of Lunig's defence of the word fascist? I just think he's got blood on his hands. I just can't believe that a mainstream newspaper like The Age published this cartoon. And we know that... The- vaccination rates in some parts of Australia are as low as 88%, which gets to the to the point where it endangers the lives of the people around them because for vaccination to work, there has to be a, um, a point at which enough people are vaccinated and something like 88% is a really dangerously low because it compromises the vaccination of those who are vaccinated, compromises their safety. And so anything legitimacy to the anti-vaccination debate and whether it's a feel-good cutesy cartoon from the man who normally draws ducks and trees or whether it's some sort of diatribe on an in- on the internet um, all fuels their fire and it hardens their resolve and in a mainstream newspaper with a well-established famous cartoonist national treasure etc to be to be um, expressing and given a platform for these views, I think is really dangerous because babies are dying. It is. It is pretty rank when, when vaccinated. Uh, yeah, when when large mainstream newspapers express uh, extremist views like that, it can be very disappointing. 
Yeah, I, was... I just think that they had it, that, that they got this one wrong, and they're continuing to get this one wrong. And I think you know what? There's no vaccination debate because it's not like we have scientists on either side expressing two legitimate points of view. Um, we know that non-vaccination is deadly and babies have died and are continuing to die. And I think it is grossly... um, It's just reprehensible. I can't believe that he's allowed to publish that. Alex Lee, um, Luning has been critical of vaccinations before. Has his standing as a National Living Treasure and Australian icon influenced the way his drawings around this issue have they influenced the way um, the issue has been perceived? Um, I, I don't know. Like, I don't really talk to anyone who's not who doesn't believe in vaccinating children, so that's kind of hard to answer. But I do think that his standing as a national treasure has definitely been affected. I mean, he's just been roundly ridiculed by so many people. And, like, before these anti-vaccination cartoons, like, I wasn't an avid lunig reader, but... I generally thought he was fine. Like I've some sometimes I'd see them in the paper and be like, "Oh, that's quite nice," or "Oh, that's cute." And like I didn't really have a problem with him. And and it wasn't until now where it makes you kind of look back at, um, you know, some of his other work and go like, "Oh, what what was he really thinking behind here?" And what what kind of you know political uh, and strange motivations are behind this man? And so I think it really does kind of colour his past work as well. Susie, uh, after the Charlie Hebdo attacks. Has the media become more hesitant in censoring cartoonists? Yes, I think it has. But at the same time, I mean, I don't think that he should be, uh, Lunig should be calling free speech on this one because in Australia anyway, there's no right to, automatic right to free speech. And um, if, if there was a cartoon that was inciting violence or expressing overtly racist, really n- not just, um, racist, but inciting other people to be racist and to take um, racist action, maybe violent action, then you would hope that that wouldn't be published. And I would put this cartoon in the same, um, um, on the same level as that. And I, I would have hoped that they wouldn't have published it. Um, and, and, you know, because it always turns these people into a martyr because he's standing up against censorship. But it just goes back to the content of the cartoon. Some things don't deserve to be published. Alex Lee, uh, cartoonists communicate their opinion in a very different way than traditional journalists. Are they given more leeway to make an impact in this limited space that they have? Yeah, I think I think cartoonists, uh, and I've kind of been paying more attention um, to them in the last couple of years, they can do some really incredibly powerful work. And I think some of the best commentary in the media um, comes from some of the um, political cartoonists, um, people like David Pope um, and Kathy Wilcox to do some really, really just lovely work that kind of crystallises how everyone's feeling. And I think they're able to do that, you know, taking uh, in just a, a, a picture and a few words um, to really capture a feeling. And I think that that's really great. And I'm, I'm glad we, we have that in the media. Um, I think a lot of the time, you know, if you were to write an opinion piece or or an article of commentary expressing how you feel, you really do have to kind of, uh, you know, lay out how you come to the arguments and back that up and and cartoonists are kind of free from that. Um, I think it's very telling sometimes the type of cartoons that that a a publication um, will put put out there because you know I think you can really kind of see um, the underlying sort of um, 
political motivations of, of some of the newspapers by what their cartoonists are allowed to say. So do you think The Age had a, a political motivation with this cartoon? Mm, I kind of feel like Loonig might be an exception. I think he's just kind of, they just, you know, an owl kind of flies in the window and drops Loonig's cartoon into their lap and they, they put it into the paper. I'm not sure. I think they just let him do whatever he wants. Susie, what do you think? Do you think The Age has a political motivation with that cartoon? Well, I don't think The Age has a political motivation because I wouldn't believe that anyone at The Age would support the um, the content of that cartoon. And I think they are probably wanting to appease Looney, who is kind of bigger than, <laughs> you know, he's such an icon. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think the, the editor should have stood up to him and said, we're not publishing that, mate. Go and do something else. And, you know, those sorts of dis- discussions are held in newspaper, um, in newsrooms, you know, every single day. And, um, you know, no one should have unfettered right to free speech if the free speech that they are, that the speech that they are expressing is, is damaging. And, you know, as we've said already, I think there's no, no doubt that these are really, really damaging um, sentiments. And I, I've got a massive, massive lunig on my living room wall, this beautiful big etching that's framed. And seeing this cartoon just makes me want to throw fruit at it. I just can't bear it. It's totally clouded lunig for me. You're listening to Fourth Estate with Alex Lee from BuzzFeed, Alex McKinnon from Junkie and Susie O'Brien from The Herald Sun. Al Jazeera has announced that it will no longer use the term migrant when describing those fleeing conflict and seeking safety in the Mediterranean. Instead, where appropriate, it will call them refugees. Al Jazeera explained the word migrant was an umbrella term that diminished the experiences of those people affected. They argue the media's use of migrant has allowed politicians to use them as scapegoats and they call for an honest discussion about the refugee crisis. Al Jazeera claimed the move is in line with their aim to give a voice to the voiceless. Alex McKinnon, do you think this will have an, its intended impact? Perhaps. Um, I can only imagine. It sounds like a really enviable situation to be in, to be debating whether or not to call refugees migrants. Um, when we, you know, if you look at the debate here where the Prime Minister routinely calls asylum seekers and refugees illegal illegals, which is always completely wrong and potentially defamatory as well. Um, and that kind of that rhetoric that is so often ramped up and is so has been just the the norm for at least fourteen years now. Um, to to have a such a strong uh, voice like Al Jazeera standing up and saying we're not going to contribute to this dehumanising sentiment that that you want us to, um, that would be a really powerful thing to see um, closer to home. I think when it comes to the debate around asylum seekers and refugees here in Australia. A few words um, are used, as you mentioned, Alex. Boat people, asylum seekers arriving by boat, queue jumpers, illegal maritime arrivals, refugees, economic migrants. Alex Lee, how does a media organisation determine what word to use? Is it influenced by political discourse um, as much as community sentiment? What is it? I think it's just about uh, clarity, most of all. I think generally it's like, well, how, how does the public... How are they best going to understand this article if I if I write it? And I know I've I've tried to personally I do a little bit of writing about this issue in Australia, and I try not to just call them asylum seekers because I think it is really it is kind of dehumanising and it's it's like the same way we don't call disabled people disabled or something like that. We you know I think we do need to make an effort to make sure that we call them uh, in a way that that reminds people that they are 
actual mums and dads, you know, fleeing uh, persecution, things like that. Uh, but it is also really clunky to do. Like, it, it's quite hard. And, and I do end up using those words sometimes. Not you know, like asylum seekers and things like that. We are out of time for Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Alex Lee, Alex McKinnon and Susie O'Brien. Don't forget, you can listen to our podcasts on 2SCR.com and iTunes and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook too. Fourth Estate is produced at the studios of 2SCR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Mariam Chihab and we're back the same time next week.